My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East, and I get to preach again. This is exciting. I've been away myself, so uh, you have been um, uh, gracious in letting Beth and I uh, do some work ourselves uh, with uh, Koreans in uh, South Korea, and uh, had a great time with the Korean students over there. Uh, But it's good to be back, and now we get to dive back into the story of Joseph. So you ready to go? Yeah, yeah, whatever, Craig, whatever you got, we're ready for you. <laughs> All right, well, this one is interesting. This passage that we get to do this morning is an interesting passage uh, in a lot of ways. And typically we might run through this and not see the gold that's in here, but there are some major nuggets in here um, that will powerfully impact our lives even this morning, let me bring you up to speed with where we have been. The, the uh, brothers have returned from Egypt. You remember, Joseph is now sold in slavery. He's become uh, second only to Pharaoh himself in Egypt, uh, brought out of jail. He's lied about by Potiphar's wife. You remember all of this. And, and now he is approached by his brothers who are starving. Uh, the whole world is starving, but because God gave Pharaoh a dream that uh, Joseph was able to interpret Joseph now has interpreted uh, and given Pharaoh a plan for how Egypt will rise to the greatest power in basically the entire planet uh, at this time. They have garnered enough food over a seven-year period where now the entire world is coming to them for food. So Joseph's brothers are starving, and their dad says to them, why are you sitting here looking at each other? Go get some food for us in Egypt. They go down to Egypt and guess who they run into. The very brother they had beaten and sold into slavery, but they don't recognize him. Joseph, uh, Joseph has changed. It's been 22 years since the brothers had sold him into slavery until this point where they see him again now. And likely, Joseph has turned almost completely Egyptian. So he's probably, as a powerful person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, he probably has his face painted, he's wearing Egyptian garb, and his brothers, on top of that, never expect to see Joseph again. To them, he is either still in slavery or dead. And so Joseph now, I think, is going through a little bit of a battle himself. He's probably thinking to himself, have his, has his brothers really changed? Now they're there begging for food. They want to stay alive. They want to keep their families alive. All of them have wives and kids by now, and they're trying to keep their families alive, including Joseph's father. Joseph doesn't know any of this until he gets to see them and asks them some strategic questions to hide his identity and yet find out if his dad's still alive, and how things are back home. They say we're honest men. He does not believe them. So in his skepticism, he sets them through a series of tests. He tells them they have to go home. He asks them if their youngest brother is still alive. Now this is key. Benjamin was just a baby when when, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery. This is 22 years later. Joseph and and Benjamin are from the same mob. That's Rachel. And one of the reasons the brothers didn't like Joseph was because he was born from Rachel. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Do you remember this? The the mom of the other brothers as well as some of the handmaids. And we're not going to get into all of that. 
Ultimately, Rachel has two kids, Joseph, Benjamin, and Jacob loved Joseph the most and made it known to all the other kids. That's one of the reasons they hated him. Joseph is thinking, if they hated me because I was born from Rachel, maybe they hate Benjamin as well. But he doesn't know because he hasn't seen them for 22 years. So he tells them to go home and retrieve Benjamin. Maybe they killed Benjamin. He, I, maybe they sold Benjamin into slavery too. He doesn't know any of this. He doesn't even know what they told his dad when he never came home from the sheep expedition. So Joseph sends them home to retrieve Benjamin. And when he does, he sends them with more grain than they can possibly carry and extra money in their bags. So when they get home and they pour out all the stuff in front of their dad, Jacob is looking and they're going, we not only have the money we took down there to buy grain, but we have a lot more now that we've come home. So they're a little bit nervous. Jacob doesn't know what's going on. And Joseph to make sure that they come back, keeps one of the brothers in jail. Do you remember this, the brother's name? Do you remember the brother's name? Anyone? Simeon. Joseph decides to keep Simeon in jail and has him dragged away in front of his brothers so they know that that he's serious. So in your minds, get this. Simeon is in jail. He is the guarantee, hopefully, that the brothers will come back. The brothers now have to go back to, back to Canaan to see their father and get Benjamin. The distance from Egypt to Canaan is significant. This probably would take a couple of months to go back and forth. Simeon is in jail for a couple of months. Simeon is in the same jail. Guess who was just in a few, a few, few months earlier? Yeah, Joseph. Well, actually, this is a few years early at this point because this is after the famine hits. Joseph figures that holding Simeon would tempt his brothers to once again keep the money, keep the grain, and give up a brother. You see, this is what happened to him. They sold Joseph for some shekels of silver, and he's wondering if they'll leave Simeon, forsake Simeon, if they've got the cash and they've got grain that they go back with. Now, here's where I am personally as we take this story. As I journey with this story with Joseph, I know we know the end of it. It's so hard sometimes to kind of pull stuff out of the story that when you're so familiar with it. But bear with me for a second. Joseph has no idea at this point in his life If his brothers have changed, if his dad's alive, if Benjamin's been sold into slavery too, he doesn't know any of that. He's trying to figure out where his brothers really are at. They've all come, they've all bowed in front of him and said, we're we're honest men. And I loved it last week when we were doing that, uh, our study last week, when we got to the passage where uh, uh, um, Pastor Mike said, uh, uh, he, they, they bowed in front of Joseph and said, we are honest men. Everybody in the church laughed. I love that. Because that means we're tracking with it. Like, how hard would it have been for Joseph not to laugh at that, right? He had to snicker a little bit. We're honest men. So he decides to put them to the test and find out if they are honest men or not. Here's where I'm at with Joseph. Do you think it has been 22, what were you doing 22 years ago? 
22 years is a long time. Do you think Joseph has begun to lose faith? Again, we've heard the story lots and lots of times. Joseph is a picture of Christ. You know, Joseph is fantastic. Joseph is wonderful. But Joseph is not talked about in the Bible a whole lot at all. Did you know that? There's a huge chunk of, pass, uh, of, of uh, chapters given to him in the book of Genesis, and that is about it. His brothers are talked about way more than he is. My question is, what, what kind of a thing is happening in his brain as he now sees his brothers? Has Joseph begun to lose faith? I would totally expect him to. What were his plans regarding the brothers? Do you think he sent them home to get Benjamin so that if Benjamin was alive, he could save Benjamin from them and then cut off all their heads? What was he thinking? He spoke to them harshly, we know that. Do you think he really trusted? Do you think he really thought they were honest men? Do you think he was having a struggle of faith himself? How in the world could God's dreams come true for Joseph? with him being in another country, forsaken and sold into slavery by his family. What are Joseph's plans? Maybe this is God's... Look, look, we could think of it this way. Maybe Joseph saw these brothers in front of him and thought to himself, this is God's opportunity for me to get rid of these guys. I mean, seriously, the world will be a better place without them, right? They've, they've slaughtered an entire village. They've done horrible things, not only to Joseph, but also to their father. They have desecrated the name of, of Israel in, in front of other people. They, these are not fine individuals. So do you think Joseph is thinking to himself, you know, maybe God has brought them here so I can save Benjamin and get rid of these guys? I, I wonder... Now, I'm not saying he's lost faith, but maybe he's having a crisis of faith. Maybe he doesn't know exactly what God is doing and he's trying to figure out. He knows God is taking care of him. I mean, seriously, how does a slave become the second most powerful person in Egypt? He knows God is taking care of him. He knows there's a, 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 a faction, a part of his dream that is coming true. Like God is raising his light above his brothers. That the, the brothers have bowed down to him like, like the sheaves bowed down in his dream years and years earlier. So maybe it's all done and over with and maybe Joseph is saying, okay, now I gotta stay in Egypt and make a name for myself and establish myself here. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, Craig, that's a really big stretch because Joseph is a faithful guy. No matter what happens, he's gonna stick with God and his faith's gonna carry him through. I want to be there too. But I wonder if that is a fair reading of the passage. And here's why. I think Joseph is a little bit skeptical. I think he's thinking to himself, how do I establish a new Joseph in a new setting? Because there's no way I'm getting home. And if I go home, my brothers are just going to kill me. Like, how is that going to happen? And then they show up in front of him. And he's trying to figure out this new story. And I think it's revealed in several different ways. Number one, he is totally thinking his family has abandoned him. Nobody has sought him down in 22 years. Nobody has come for him. Jacob hasn't sought him out. His mother has not sought him out. They didn't send an entourage of people to find him. 
Now, Jacob thinks he's dead, but his brothers know it every time they go to sleep at night, and still they don't look out for him. So, so here's, here's, here's the topic we're going to handle today, and you, you're going to love this, I hope. The topic is this. The question is, how does skepticism affect us? How does this skepticism change or affect Joseph? Can Joseph overcome skepticism? When somebody comes to you and says, Joe, Sarah, Sally, whatever, I've hurt you. I've done bad things in the past that have hurt your family. I have done things that have not been, uh, not, not been well uh, intended toward you. I have been a disappointment to you. And here's the thing. I have changed What is your response? Is our response before God supposed to be, you know what, I totally accept that, I forgive you, let's go on like nothing happened? Or is our response supposed to be a little bit skeptical? Is it wrong to be skeptical? Is there skepticism allowed in there at all? How do we work through? You've been cheated on as a spouse. How do you deal with a spouse when they come home and they said, I've changed? They've squandered the life savings. And they come home and they say, I apologized. How do you deal with that? After 22 years, Joseph has had nobody chase him down. He totally feels like he's been forgotten. He put all the money back in their sacks and they've stayed away. Now listen, they've not only stayed away for a couple of months, they've stayed away for many months. You're about to find out that these guys, these brothers, took the grain, took the money, and got out of town went back to Canaan and stayed there for a significant amount of time. They made no intention of coming back for Simeon at all. Joseph in that time period has to think, well, they should have been back by now, and they're not back. I'm not surprised. And Joseph is trying to figure out what God's plans are while dealing with these brothers who say, Joseph, we've changed. What is Joseph's responsibility. Let me give you this one thing that I think put me over the edge on this. Joseph seems to have almost completely abandoned the thought that he will ever be a part of his family again. I don't think he has any idea he will ever be reunited to Jacob or his, or his mom who has passed away now, but he'll never be reunited with his family again. And here's why. We read, while Joseph is in Egypt, that he takes an Egyptian wife. He has Egyptian children. His name is changed to an Egyptian name. He's second most powerful person in Egypt. I think Joseph has become completely Egyptian and thinking to himself, he'll never come home again. He'll never be reunited with his family. The reason I say that is because this family has a weird way of revealing their inner thoughts and emotions in the way they name their children. Do you remember this? Do you know what Joseph named his children? If you do, you're a good scholar of Scripture. Let me give it to you if you don't. Genesis 41:50. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. So he has, a, he has an Egyptian wife. He's now having Egyptian families, and he calls them these names. Joseph called the name of the firstborn, what church? 
Manasseh. Do you know what Manasseh means? It's written right here. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Isn't that sad? He calls the name of his son Manasseh, which means I've forgotten because he has been able to forget he was ever born of this family. He has forsaken them altogether. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for he said, this is what Ephraim means, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The first name of the firstborn is, I've forgotten my family. I'm done with them. Wash his hands. The name of the second is, I have a new life in Egypt, and God is blessing me here. I don't think Joseph has any idea how this would ever happen, that he would reconcile with these brothers again. And sending them home with money and grain and not hearing from them for months doesn't surprise him at all. What do you think? Is that harsh? I think Joseph is having a faith crisis. That's what makes me excited about sharing this passage with you this morning. Let's dive in. Uh, If you're using your Bibles this morning, we are in chapter 43. We're going to be picking up there and walking through actually a couple of chapters this morning. Verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. So when do they go back to Egypt? When did they go back to Egypt? When they ran out of food. They did not go back to Egypt when they told their father, Simeon's in an Egyptian jail. They went back to Egypt when they ran out of food. All right? What does that tell you about the brothers? Compassionate, loving individuals, right? Not so much. No one seemed to be concerned about Simeon. I think these guys were grateful. They got away from the man. They call him the man. They got away from the man with their lives, and with some extra cash. They don't know how that happened, but there's some extra cash in their sacks and a lot of of food. So they eat all the food, and now they've run out again. Why did they wait to have this conversation with their dad? That's the question. Well, we find out in verse 3 exactly why. Then Judah said to, to him, to his dad, The man, that's talking about Joseph, they don't know it's Joseph, they just know it's the leader down there that gave us his food. The man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Talking about Benjamin. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food, Dad. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. So now we see what the holdup is. The holdup is not the brothers. What's the holdup? Their dad. The holdup is Jacob is not willing to give up Benjamin for Simeon. Why? <laughs> because Benjamin is son of his favorite wife. Benjamin's second in line in Jacob's heart. Benjamin is the favorite now. And the brothers come home and they say, okay, the man says he wants all of the brothers down there. So we got to bring Benjamin down if we're going to get Simeon out of jail. And the minute they tell Jacob that, Jacob says, no, let's wait this famine out. I've lost every time you guys leave the house, you always lose a brother. So I am not going to give you Benjamin because you're going to lose him too. 
So no, you may not go down. We're going to eat the food, and we're going to wait for God to provide, and the famine gets worse. Verse 6. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully. Of course he did. He knew who they were. About ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. And Jacob is saying to them, Listen, have I not told you anything? If somebody has, tells you that, asks you if you have another brother, you tell them, No. You lie. You lie, lie, lie till your pants catch fire. You lie. Why do you lie? Because when you lie, you get off easier. It's the easy way out. And Jacob lied his whole life. You remember the old Jacob? He stole a birthright. He lied to his father. He lied in some pretty amazing way. Abraham lied. His grandfather, Abraham, lied about Sarah being his wife. You remember this? It runs in the family. The only guy telling the truth in this whole family is Joseph. And he ended up being in prison and sold into slavery. And So the moral of the story is if you're in Jacob's family, you lie. Because it's the easy way out. Now the amazing thing is, the truth seems to scare Jacob more than trusting that God would have a plan. For Joseph, he does not lie. He seems to be breaking these generational patterns because he believes God has a plan. Now, how does this little nugget help us today? (laughs) Because we are kind of tempted to lie every once in a while because it seems like the easy way out, right? We lie on our taxes just a little bit, tweak here, tweak there. The police stop us and they say, do you know why we pulled you over? And you say, I have no idea, right? When in reality, you kind of do, right? We get caught doing something at work that we know we shouldn't be doing. We cheat on a test at school. We lie about it. We're tempted to lie to our parents. Listen, we do these little white lies all the time because it seems to be the easy road out. Here's the problem. The more you take the easy road out, those lies always catch up to you. You've got to trust the Lord has a bigger plan than you lying to get the easy way out. Jacob looks at his sons and says, why in the world did you tell the man the truth? You lie. That's what you do. You are, you are, and you are my son, you lie. Ravi Zacharias says, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're prepared to pay. And it all begins with little navigations here and there to take the easy way out. In the short term, it might seem like telling, not telling the truth is the easy way out. But it'll always take you down a path you don't want to go. Verse 11. Their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, mm, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Oh, by the way, Why did he just send nuts and gum from a tree down? They don't have any food left. He's sending them whatever they have. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Maybe it was an oversight. Take also your brother. Had to break his heart. And arise, go again to the man, and may God Almighty grant you the mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother Benjamin. And as for me, listen to this now, Jacob says... If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Total 
fatalism. Every time these brothers leave, they lose a kid. Simeon is in prison. And I think he thinks fully he's going to lose another one or all of them if they go down there. But he doesn't have any choice. They're starving. So he has to send them down. His wealth was going away now. They ate all the sheep. So what are they left with? Now he's losing his family. It is interesting, though, that he uses a term for God that Sarah, his grandmother, used for the very first time in Scripture. He uses the word for God that means El Shaddai in Hebrew. And what that means is God, the God who bends creation. Wouldn't it be great to believe in a God who could bend creation? Sarah called God El Shaddai when she was told that she was going to have a son when she was 80 years old. God bent creation. He made creation do something it wasn't made typically to do. And so their father sends them down there and says, May God El Shaddai do something that we cannot see. May He bend creation. May He do the impossible. Verse 15. So the men took His present and took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now before Joseph sees them, he throws them a huge banquet. They have to be surprised at this. It's been longer than they should have been. They should have been back by now. And they are greeted by Joseph with a huge banquet. You've got to think, they are thinking, what's up? Something weird is happening. Maybe they would think like Joseph is feeling us out. Maybe he's trying to, you know, smooth up to us so that he can ask us where we've been for the last couple of months. Maybe he knew there was some extra money in our bags and he's wondering if we're going to give it back and he wants kind of a casual surrounding to see if we're going to tell him the truth. They got to be thinking all of this. Like, why would he throw them, these, these ten brothers, a banquet? But they go and they bring Benjamin. And verse 29 says this, And he, Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin and his his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Benjamin was probably three or four by the time Joseph was sold into slavery. He was just a baby. Now this kid, Benjamin, is probably 25, 24, 25 years old. Joseph doesn't recognize him, no more than you would. And Joseph asked the brothers, is this Benjamin? Then Joseph hurried out in verse 30, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. I think Joseph is becoming a true believer again. His brothers have already bowed before him and begged for their lives and begged for food and done all the stuff that you would do if you were starving to death. But now he's beginning to see his family come together. And I think this is the point where Joseph has his first glimmer of hope. Maybe God can do the impossible. So he gives them a final test to see if these brothers have really changed. Oh, this is such a beautiful story. Verse 1 of chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Joseph was determined to see if these men would be honest men. 
Would they be honest this time if they were about to lose another brother? So he sets up a scenario where they're going to lose Benjamin. Who has the, gold, who has the silver cup? Whose sack is it in? Benjamin's. Verse 4. And they had gone out a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this, that, this cup that my Lord drinks? He sends out his army to go after these guys, stop them, and have them empty their sacks. He knows the silver cup is in there. He wants to see how they will respond. He sets them up. They all empty their bags and they show the guards and sure enough, in verse 12, he searched, beginning with the eldest. Oh, this is so... Doesn't this just wrench your heart? The way this is written, it just drags it out. They search beginning with the eldest and then the second oldest and then the third oldest and then down until they get to the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. How long do you think that ride was back to Egypt? They think they're going to die. How could they prove their innocence? They're caught red-handed by Joseph's own guard. How are they going to defend themselves? And with every step of those donkeys on the way home, they've got to be thinking, that's it, we're dead, and our father will never know what happened to us. He'll think we failed again. And we were set up. And they're probably thinking to themselves, why in the world would Benjamin do this? Judah, when they get back to Joseph, is the first to speak. And his speech will tear your heart out. Verse 16, Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom, whose hand the cup has been found. What does Judah not do? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't do any of that. What strikes you, what strikes me weird about this, is not only does he not defend himself, but he says, we are guilty. God has found out the guilt of your servants. What is Judah talking about? They're not guilty. They didn't steal the cup. What is he talking about here? Church, what do you think he's talking about here? I think for 22 years, these guys have worn the guilt of what they did to Joseph. So much so that every day they think, today's the day God's going to get us. Verse 16. Or uh, verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Joseph said this, Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph gives him a door. He says, No, no, no. I'm not going to hurt any of you. I'm only going to punish the one whose cup, who's, who, who's, who, who we found the cup in his bag. That's the only one I'm going to punish. The rest of you are free to go. You can take all the grain with you. You can take all your money with you. There's the door. Take the door. I'm only going to keep one. You can even take Simeon with you. I've had him long enough. He can go too. All I want is the one who's guilty. Final test. 
Does this not sound familiar to what happened 22 years earlier? This is the pinnacle of the test. The, the test. This was their chance not only to freedom, but this was their chance to get rid of the other brother their father loved more than them. Get rid of Benjamin. And then, church, the unthinkable happens. Judah steps up and confesses over the next few verses 22 years of shame. We don't have time to go through all of the verses, but there is a chunk of verses that reminds me as Judah confesses to this individual that he does not know, the man in Egypt. He confesses his sin. He confesses the brother's sin. He tells him about how they sold their other brother. He does not know this Joseph he's talking to. He confesses, he confesses years of sin to this individual he doesn't even know. And if you want to read through it, it'll tear your heart out, but it reminds me of a Rembrandt painting that I love. It's called The Prodigal Son. This is a powerful painting, one of my favorite. And it's interesting, when we had breakfast in Korea, this is the painting that sat behind my head every morning that we had breakfast on the wall. This painting is a... Rembrandt was known for his dark... Uh, his, the, the dark and the shadows that he had in his paintings. And if you look closely enough, you'll see little details in every painting that Rembrandt does. Most of them religious. This one, powerful. This is the father welcoming back the prodigal son. Everything about the faces. There's little faces in the background that you can't see on this. You can see one there. Just watching the grace flowing out of the dad over the son who has abused his father. He came to his dad and he said, Dad, give me my inheritance now so I can spend it. Forget you. Forget this family. Give me what's mine. And, and he did. The father gave it to him and he spent it. He blew it. And he comes home years later because he cannot survive. He's left to eat food that the pigs are eating in the st stalls. And everything from the rags to the shaved head to the feet with one sandal on and one off indicates to us the brokenness of this kid to come back and beg for mercy from his dad. And his dad, simply with loving hands on the shoulder of his son, forgives him. Throws a banquet for him. You know the story. Judah reminds me of this kid. Because Judah stands in front of a stranger and confesses years of guilt, not looking for mercy, not begging for forgiveness, just because his shame wore so heavy on his shoulders for so long, he had to let it go. Verse 33. Now therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy, Judah says, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This response has to shock Joseph. These are the same brothers that sent a bloodied, multicolored gown back to their dad, FedEx. They didn't even show up themselves to tell their dad what happened. They sent a servant with this bloodied gown of Joseph's to say to their dad, hey, listen, is this your son's multicolored robe? These are the same boys. 
And now they're not trying to defend themselves. Instead, Judah is saying, whatever you do, take it out on me, but don't take it out on Benjamin. Judah is offering up himself for the sake of the others. 22 years earlier, it's interesting, Judah was the one who engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Judah was the guy that did the conversation with the Ishmaelites. Judah was the one that brought it up. And now Judah is the one preparing to give himself up so that this other son of Rachel, this brother their, their father loved more than them, could be free. 22 years earlier, he stood with the brothers and silently watched while the bloody tunic they had been, they brought to Joseph sent their father into a fit of anguish. And now he's willing to do whatever he could to make sure that didn't happen again. These boys actually care about somebody else other than themselves. So, 45 verse 1. Like you or like me, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. He's not just weeping small little tears. He is wailing loudly so everybody in the next few rooms could hear what's going on. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine the scene? These brothers are looking at somebody that's having a nervous breakdown that is the most powerful king in Egypt that they know of. He's having a nervous breakdown right in front of them, and they are, (laughs) what do you think they're thinking? Oh man, we're all going to die. Terrified. And then they have to think, wait, 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 wait. How does he know the name of our brother? Because they've never said it. How could this be Joseph? So Joseph said to his brothers in verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I, You can just see him like wiping the paint from his face. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And the tenderness of this guy just blows me away. This is a man who has overcome his skepticism and has offered and understood forgiveness in a supernatural way. And my question at this point is, how is this possible? Joseph could have ridded the world of these guys and nobody would bat an eye. But instead he offers them forgiveness. How is this possible? And we find out in verse 5. And now do not be distressed, Joseph said, or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Can you imagine this? For God sent me here before you to preserve life. The only way Joseph could forgive like this is because he had to see it through God's eyes. He saw his situation not with, hey, he could have stood in front of them and said, I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. What do you think of me now? (laughs) But instead he said, I am Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. God is incredible. The story is not about what the brothers could accomplish or Jacob, how Jacob could fix things or Joseph could finagle a difficult situation. The story is about God's work and our ability to trust him. That's it. So, number one, God overcomes our skepticism that we're pulled toward. When somebody tells you they've changed, what's your first response? If it's skepticism, join the club. I guess Joseph was skeptical as well. Sure you've changed. Sure you're honest men. And skepticism is not necessarily wrong. Here's the question. Will you become a slave to your skepticism? 
Because if you believe somebody cannot change more than you believe in the power of God to change someone, you're a slave to your skepticism. And when you get that, that far down, you'll never believe in El Shaddai. You'll put, you'll put limits on God's power. God can break through some things, but he can't break through that. Joseph had to overcome his skepticism toward his own brothers. He had to allow his heart to believe the in, in unbelievable. Maybe his brothers have changed. We're told that Joseph cried three times in his interactions with his brothers. The first time he cries, he jails them. The second time he cries, he tests them. And the third time he cries, he forgives them. You know what that tells me about Joseph? He had a tender heart. No matter what kind of faith crisis he was going through, he maintained this heart that maybe God's power was greater than he thought. Could do greater things than he thought. Listen, when we give our personal situations more power than we attribute to God, we become paralyzed by our skepticism. Let me say that one more time because it's really good. When we give our personal situations more power than we attribute to God, we become paralyzed by our skepticism. We see situations we think God's power cannot possibly break through. But I want to remind you of many scriptures in, in the Bible that speak exactly the opposite. And here's one of my favorite, 1 Corinthians 2.9. It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So listen, if you think that God is not able to overcome whatever's going on in somebody else's life, you're selling God short. His power can do more then our skepticism will allow us to believe sometimes. So, don't sell God's power short. Don't stop believing. And the journey song is right, all right? Number two, we may not know the story God is weaving out, so stay faithful. Joseph had to overcome his skepticism, not only about his brothers, could they change, he had to overcome his skepticism toward God. Can God really pull off something great like this. Maybe this story is about a gracious God restoring faith to one of his wounded servants. Joseph names his sons Manasseh and Ephraim, which basically means I'm done with my family. I'm starting new. And I think that Joseph took some steps to abandon. He had to, maybe because his own mind wouldn't allow him to believe that God could possibly fix this. He actually said, God has made him forget his father's house. I think he was just trying to make the most of broken dreams. But Joseph had to be convinced that God never forgets his own. And we must be convinced that God never forgets and he never forsakes his own. And if you feel like you've been forgotten by God because of situations in the lives of others surrounding you, don't sell God short. What I found is this. Always in the background, God is always at work. And I don't know what he's doing. Sometimes people continually disappoint me. But I don't know what God's doing in their lives, and neither do you. God never forgets and never forsakes his own. And so church, pray. Pray, pray, pray that God would change a heart. Just like he did with us, he can do with others. Four times from this point forward, Joseph reiterates to his brothers, God sent me in front of you 
to preserve life. Joseph was not willing to let his skepticism lead him to vengeance, but he lived out his full potential. Last thing, be willing to forgive always, but don't be dumb. Do you know what that means? Simply this. What is our challenge when people show show signs of change? What What is our thought process? Craig, I've changed. The first thing that comes into my mind is, yeah, right. Or I'll bet you as soon as I turn my back, you'll do the same thing again. My first impression is to believe that, nah, I'm going to be a little skeptical to the point where when they do drop the ball, I'll go, I saw that coming. It is hard to believe somebody has changed, especially when we are the ones who have been hurt. Joseph's plan is brilliant because we can see it in the three times that he weeps. The first time is the test one. Will they come back for Simeon? The second one is test two. Will they come back to save their youngest brother? The third one, test three, will they demonstrate any care over the youngest when his life is in jeopardy? Joseph doesn't take their word for it that they're honest men. He tests them. He gives them opportunity to demonstrate that they're honest men now. And I think that is one of the main things we take away from this story. Because when somebody comes to us and says, I've changed, and they've hurt us or people around us, it does not mean we need to put ourselves back in a vulnerable position. It probably means we need to give them opportunities to demonstrate if they've changed. Now keep in mind, we are called to forgive in every circumstance. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Here's the bar, as God in Christ forgave you. In fact, be imitators of God as beloved children. There is no circumstance where we're allowed to seek vengeance on someone else. But at the same time, we are not called to allow sin to continue its devastation in our lives or the lives of others. Sometimes there's residue for sinful behavior. Sometimes there's consequences. Sometimes you do need to cut off relationships. Sometimes it's not going to be the same. Sometimes discipline is the right call. Sometimes skepticism is not wrong. But always forgiveness is ready to flow. Always forgiveness is ready to come from us. Because always restoration is the goal. But we are never called to go back into a destructive situation. Jesus said it this way. I love the way Jesus said it. I'm sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Don't you love that? Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. If you, if you need help with this, godly counsel is available. That's why we're here to help you through and figure out in your skepticism steps for restoration. Restoring a cheating spouse is powerful, but it must be done with careful thought and prayer. Restoring a church leadership is powerful. A church leader, but may have long-term consequences on his future roles or her future roles. Restoring broken friendships is powerful, but you might need to to implement some serious guidelines in your new relationship with somebody who has broken trust. Guidelines are smart. It's a good way to prove a change of heart. Several years ago, a man came to me and he confessed that he had committed adultery and he had broken his covenant with his wife. 
he had a moment of weakness, and it was a one-time occurrence, and was completely broken to the point where he could, the next day, no longer operate as a normal individual. When people saw him the next day, obviously something was wrong. They thought he was sick. They told him to go home. And the guilt wore on this man's heart like a chain. He could bear it no longer. And so he went to his wife and confessed. She didn't know what to do, and so she sought godly counsel And because he was a servant in the church, he had a leadership position in the church, he also went to the church and confessed. And then you know what this guy did? Not only did he go to his wife, but he went to the woman's husband and confessed. And then he went to his wife's father and mother and confessed. And then he went to his wife's siblings and confessed. He made a special effort where he would need to travel significant distances in order to confess to everyone who had been hurt by this one time indiscretion. And after that, he and his wife began working on their relationship again. She admitted some flaws that she had. He admitted numerous that he had And they began to rebuild their relationship. It's about 12 or 15 years later now, and they have a stronger marriage than they've ever had in their lives with godly children. Coming home as a prodigal is a long walk. But sometimes prodigals come home. And when they do, it's a beautiful picture of God's grace and what His power can do. We, church, cannot allow our skepticism to make that road longer than it needs to be. But at the same time, we need to be careful that when we offer God's forgiveness, we don't intentionally put ourselves into situations where we are going to be hurt again. There are wise ways to deal with our skepticism and wise ways to restore those who have fallen. And this story from Joseph blows me away because it happened 5,000 years ago and holds so much truth to how we can handle situations here in 2019. So again, if you've been hurt by somebody who's asking you to forgive them, forgiveness is always offered. But perhaps you need a little bit of help to figure out the tests you can help them go through to demonstrate a genuine change of heart. Sometimes the tests are easy, sometimes they're hard. But if the change is genuine, the tests will be fulfilled. Broken hearts are very hard to heal. But people who ask for forgiveness, it's a long walk home. Let's not make it harder on them than it needs to be, but let's be wise about how we maneuver them through their forgiveness process. What do you think? Hard, right? Powerful. So much where we are. We come to communion. We always finish with communion because it's how we cap off our time together and make sure that we've made the gospel clear. And here's the gospel in this, all of this. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, 
He is, you know this verse? He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that means? Every prodigal is welcome home. And God's grace is absolutely sufficient for any prodigal and any sin that we've done. You are probably sitting here thinking to yourself, Craig, you have no idea how deep my sin runs, how deep my challenges go, how much of a failure I've been to this person or that person or my own kids or whatever, my work or people that I've loved. You sit among a group of people who have been forgiven and understand to to maybe a small degree what it means to be forgiven of some pretty nasty things. The reason we do communion is we celebrate God forgives all. Prodigals are welcome home. The person who told the story of the prodigal son was Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants us to know all can be forgiven. There are no stipulations. All there is is we ask for forgiveness. And so if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, Craig, I need forgiveness, maybe you need to do some business at the prayer booth afterwards. We're going to have a guy over there that will pray with you and we'll send a woman over there that can pray with you as well. And maybe you just need to do some confessing and ask for some help on what next steps you need to take. Maybe you're a prodigal that has hurt somebody else. And you're sitting here thinking to yourself, I need to do some business. Don't leave without doing it. We can help you with that. Don't let 22 years of guilt weigh on your shoulders. It doesn't have to. You can know forgiveness and absolute absolution. Absolute absolution. But it has to start with you asking for forgiveness from the one you hurt the most. And that is the one who loves you the most, Jesus Christ. But if you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, Craig, I'm, I don't know of anybody that I need to ask for forgiveness from, but I realize maybe in a new way how much God has forgiven me, then good, that's communion. Because your forgiveness didn't come cheap. In order to forgive you, God had to sacrifice His only Son. The juice that you drink is represented in His blood. The body is represented in the cracker that we eat. This is our celebration of the fact we all are prodigals who've been welcomed home. And if you've never been forgiven and you want that, that's available. But if you've been forgiven, whether you're from this church or another church, join with us. Eat and drink with full knowledge God has forgiven you and you belong to Him. We're going to take a minute. I think the Lord probably is working in our lives in different ways. So we're going to take a minute and you can pray to the Lord silently and just maybe thank Him for His forgiveness. Pray if you're a prodigal that needs to come home. Pray if you're a skeptic and you can't believe somebody deserves forgiveness but they're asking you for it. You pray and you ask God to show you a road that will allow you to be a forgiving brother or sister. Take this time, and then we're going to pass out the the trays, take the juice, take the, the bread, just hang on to it until we all get it, and then we'll stand as you receive it. And once we all have it in our hands, I'll come up, I'll read a passage of Scripture. We'll eat and drink together like prodigals who've been welcomed home. Sound good? That's what we'll do.